You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, As-Siratu Nabawiyyah, the prophetic biography. In the previous couple of sessions, <coughs> excuse me, in the previous couple of sessions, we've been talking about the Prophet Sallallahu arrival in Al-Madinatul Munawwara and his temporary residence in the home of Abu Ayyub Al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. And we also talked about some of the initial activities that the Prophet Sallallahu engaged in at that time to start bu- building and solidifying the community. Of course, one of the for, first things that happened, which I've uh, spoken about in a lot of detail, is when the Prophet ﷺ rode Al-Qaswa, the she-camel, into the illuminated city of Medina, um, it stopped at the place where the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ would be constructed. He, of course, inquired... Um, as to who this land belonged to, and belonged to Sahel and Suhail, two orphans who were under the care of one of the Ansar. Um, and they offered it to the Prophet Then It was a place where they used to put out dates to kind of dry them and store dates. So they offered it to the Prophet but the Prophet refused and he said, no, tell me how much it costs, I will purchase this land, because it belongs to these two orphans. Once the Prophet ﷺ had worked out the deal and the land was now in the possession of the Prophet ﷺ, the community for the construction of the masjid, he takes up his residence in the home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The next day the construction begins and that's basically what we'll be talking about today. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Ya Jartha minu hadha. So he purchases the land from them. Now they start building the actual masjid. So what I'll be describing to you is the basic construction of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. So first and foremost, that first and uh, first thing that we need to know is that did they hire a construction crew? Did the Prophet ﷺ solicit some volunteers? Did they go and try to put out some type of a word that we need some people to help and construct the masjid? No, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ basically rolled up his sleeves, went out the next day, and of course we talked about it that in the first few days. I mean, the whole city was basically just captivated. There were people waiting outside of the home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu at all hours of the day, just waiting to sit with the Prophet ﷺ, meet with the Prophet ﷺ, talk with the Prophet ﷺ. And so, <clears throat> the Prophet ﷺ comes out the next day, and he rolls up his sleeves, and the Prophet ﷺ basically goes out there, starts picking up, you know, tree branches and goes and starts gathering together some rocks and, uh, you know, starts getting together the materials to basically put together some bricks, like mud bricks. And he starts putting this stuff together and doing it himself. And immediately, uh, it's actually uh, narrated that some of the Ansar and the other Muslims, when they see the Prophet ﷺ just rolling up his sleeves and starting to gather the raw materials, to start constructing the masjid himself, they start to say, لَإِنْقَ عَدْنَا وَالنَّبِيُّ يَعْمَلُوا لَذَلِكَ مِنَّ الْعَمَلُ الْمُضَلَّلُ 
that they say that if we remain sitting while the Messenger of Allah the Prophet of God is working, then that is a very bad action from us. Like it's truly regrettable if we sit here, just sitting here, we, we just continue to sit here watching while the Prophet ﷺ is rolling up his sleeves and working. So everybody jumps up and everyone starts getting into it. And the Prophet ﷺ, now that he notices that there's a group of people that want to help and are kind of gathering together to construct the masjid, the Prophet ﷺ tells them, he gives them some instruction. He says, Ibnuhu Arishan ka Arishi Musa. He says, put it together as almost like a, like a shed. A word for arish would almost be like a shed. So the word that he even uses, not even imara or bina, which would mean a construction or a building. He says, just a shed is all we need. Something to cover our heads. And make it like the arish of Musa. Make it like the, the shed of Musa alayhi salam. So one of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, he says, فَقُلْتُ لِلْحَسَنِ I, I, I asked the narrator of this narration, مَا عَرِيشُ مُوسَى So what is the Arish of Musa? Like what is that like? So he says that إِذَا رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ بَلَغَ الْعَرِيشِ That the shed of Musa alayhi salam, the shade of Musa alayhi salam was such that if he raised his hands up, he could touch the ceiling. If he raised his hands up, he could touch the ceiling. يَعْنِي السَّقَفْ and there are other narrations which also explain the same thing. So now they start kind of building the masjid and they start putting it together. So what did it look like? What were the materials that they were using? What was the blueprint? What, what did the construction actually look like? So it's described uh, in the authentic narrations about the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ that there was a little bit of a process. So it, said, it says, first and foremost, كَانَ فِيهِ قُبُورُ الْمُشْرِكِينَ that it was well known to some of the residents there in, the, in that area that this was like an ancient gravesite. Not like an actual active graveyard, maqbara, but it was an ancient gravesite, long, long time ago. Barely people could recall or remember. وَكَانَتْ فِيهِ خِرَابٌ And there were some like, uh, there were some walls, like some leftover walls, like almost ruins. So there were like all these half walls and things like that that were still kind of standing around. Number three is وَكَانَ فِيهِ نَخْلٌ And then there were a few random trees just kind of growing here and there. فَأَمَرَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم بِقُبُورِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ فَنُبِشَتْ So first and foremost, the Prophet ﷺ said that where you think that some of the remains, like the ancient remains may be, go ahead and dig that part of the ground up to make sure that there is nothing there. And if something does come up like a few random bones or something like that, then go and bury them elsewhere. Because it's not an active graveyard, gravesite anymore. It's like some ancient, it's rumored to be some ancient gravesite. Which pretty much any spot in the earth could be. So that just can't be known. So he said just kind of if you do find, you know, dig some spots up and if you find some bones or remains or whatever it may be, go and bury them elsewhere. And then the walls, the half walls and some of the ruins that were still in place, he ordered and commanded for them to be of course torn down and cleaned up and removed. So clean it out. And then lastly, whatever trees are there, then chop those trees down and again smooth out the land. So they smoothed it out, cleaned it out basically. That's the first thing they did. The next thing that they did was فَصَفُوا النَّخْلَ قِبْلَةَ الْمَسْجِدِ 
So وَجَعَلُوا عِضَادَتَيْهِ حِجَارَةً فَجَعَلُوا يَنْقُلُونَ ذَلِكَ الصَّخْرَ وَهُمْ يَرْتَجِزُونَ وَرَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ يَقُولُ So now the next thing that they did was that they brought trees, those same trees that they had chopped down. It wasn't like they just chopped these trees down and threw them away. The trees that they had chopped down, they laid them out according to the structure of the masjid to basically be the pillars. These would be the support beams. The pillars of the masjid. So they laid them down f- to serve that structure. They stood them up and they basically put rocks around it. Just like we would put a pole into the ground. They put some rocks around it to kind of hold it into its place. Dug it into the ground a little bit. And then put some rocks around the base of it. And then they stood these pillars up. And these would be the pillars of the masjid. The support beams in the walls of the masjid. Then what they did was they brought it. Basically they started bringing bricks. And these were a type of bricks that they normally would just construct. And they were mud bricks. They were clay. They were mud. Where they would basically take this mud. They would take this clay. They would dry it out in the desert sun. For an extended period of time. And it would become rock. It would become solid. So they started bringing these bricks over now. Um, and they were bringing them one by one. Everybody was carrying. These were pretty big, wide, huge bricks. They started bringing them over one by one. And the narration says, وَهُمْ يَرْتَجِزُونَ And they were like all like kind of chanting or they were all reciting. They were all saying, singing loudly. Just like a, imagine kind of like a troop that would be marching. And they're like, they're, they're, they're reciting or saying or, you know, singing something together. Um, so they, they were reciting something. And the Prophet along with them was also saying this. Allahumma innahu la khaira illa khairul akhira. Fansuril ansara wal muhajara. That the Prophet was saying that, Oh Allah, there is no good except for the good of the akhira. So help the ansar and the muhajirun. Another narration also says that they were saying, Allahumma inna al ajra ajrul akhira. Oh Allah, there is no reward, that the ultimate reward is the reward of the hereafter. So have mercy upon the Ansar and the Muhajireen. And multiple, multiple narrations like this, that basically there were different. Allahumma la aisha illa aishul akhirah. The only worth, the only life worth living is the life of the hereafter. Allahumma rhamil ansara wal muhajira. So Allah shower your mercy upon the Ansar and the Muhajireen. Um, and so the, they were all reciting this together loudly and they were bringing these bricks one after another. And there's a very beautiful story here that basically occurs um, that is narrated in many, many of the books of uh, Hadith and Sirah that as everybody was carrying the bricks back and forth, the narration specifically says that Everyone was bringing labinatan, labinatan, one brick at a time. Everyone's bringing because it was a very large, big, like you know, brick, and everyone was bringing one at a time. And the Prophet ﷺ looked at Ammar ibn Yasir, Ammar ibn Yasir, who we've talked about in a lot of detail in the previous sessions, um, was one of the er- one of the early converts to Islam in Mecca. He was a Meccan Sahabi, a Muhajir. His father and mother, Yasir, and his mother, Sumayya, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, had died in the persecution 
that was put upon the early Muslims at that time. His mother, in fact, is the first person to lose her life in this ummah for the sake of Islam. She's the first shaheed, the first shahida. And so Ammar radiallahu ta'ala was barely able to escape with his life. And the Prophet had sent him off to Al-Habasha to join the Muslims in Abyssinia, in East Africa. When he heard about the migration of Muslims from Mecca to Medina and the fact that this migration had been announced and legislated by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he had left Abyssinia and joined the Muslims there, early Muslims, the early uh, immigrants to Medina. He had joined them there. And in fact, like we had talked about before, that the people that arrived in Medina, the, the, the muhajirun who arrived in Medina before the Prophet sallallahu were actually staying in Quba, awaiting the arrival of the Prophet and for the Prophet instruction as to where and how they should settle. So Ammar bin Yasir was one of them and he was also involved in that construction of the Masjid of Quba. And we talked about how the Prophet when he saw him, he was so happy and he was so overjoyed to see Ammar safe and sound and that he welcomed him. While everyone was welcoming the Prophet he welcomed him. And he loved Ammar very much like a brother because he knew that he had lost everyone and everything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the early persecution of Muslims. And so the Prophet ﷺ sees everyone is carrying one brick at a time and he sees Ammar radiallahu ta'ala anhu carrying two bricks. He sees Ammar radiallahu ta'ala anhu carrying two bricks at a time. And so the Prophet ﷺ stops him. He stops him and he takes one brick out of his hand and he tells him that one at a time only one at a time. You're going to hurt yourself, yourself, Ya Ammar. And the narration even mentions just like how you would talk to like a younger brother. How you would talk to your son. How you would talk to your younger brother. Um, that you would almost kind of say, like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Wait, hey, what do you think you're doing? And it's kind of like a loving type of a discourse, how brothers talk to each other, how friends talk to one another, how you would talk to your younger brother. So the narration says, He was carrying two bricks at a time. So the Prophet ﷺ in one narration says, and the Prophet ﷺ to honor the sacrifice, even though his name is Ammar bin Yasir. Ammar, the son of Yasir. And his father, of course, was also a very respected Sahabi, companion, Muslim, early Muslim, a companion of the Prophet ﷺ. But to honor the sacrifice of his mother, the first Shahida. And this again shows you that the contribution of women in early Islam at the time of Rasulullah ﷺ was acknowledged, was recognized, and was proclaimed. That the Prophet ﷺ didn't refer to him as Ya Ammar or Yabna Yasir, Yasir, O son of Yasir, but the Prophet ﷺ called him Yabna Sumayya, Ya Ibn Sumayya, O son of Sumayya, to honor his mother's sacrifice. And so he said, Wayhullaka Ya Ibn Sumayya. He says, What are you doing, O son of Sumayya, Yabna Sumayya? Taqtulu, uh, the, the Prophet said, you're going to hurt yourself. And so he tells the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, I am carrying two bricks, one for me and one on behalf of you, Ya Rasulullah, because I don't want you to carry anything. This was the love that he had for the Prophet And the Prophet had, had, had earned this love. 
He had, he, he had developed this love for them, for himself and for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within their hearts through the love, the compassion, and the care that he showed to them. So he said, I'm carrying one brick on my behalf and one brick on behalf of the Messenger of Allah. The Prophet took one brick out of his hand and then he started kind of like rubbing his back. How you like put an arm around somebody's shoulder. How you pat them on the back. The Prophet ﷺ patted him on the back. To show him the appreciation. To show him that affection and that love. And one narration even goes as far as saying, فَمَسَحَ بِرَأْسِهِ That the Prophet ﷺ rubbed his head. And the narration actually, the, some of the muhaddithun, جَعَلَ يَمْسَحُ رَأْسَهُ that the Prophet ﷺ started rubbing his head. And one of the narrations, uh, Muhaddithun actually explained that the reason why the Prophet ﷺ was rubbing his head, because he saw that there was so much dust in his hair from the construction, that the Prophet ﷺ started brushing his hair and cleaning his hair for him. And so this is that, uh, that, that incident during the construction. And the Prophet ﷺ told him at that time, تَقُتُلُكَ فِئَةٌ بَغْيَةٌ That the people that will kill you, will be wretched people. Rebellious people will kill you. Fi abaghiyah. That people who rebel against the ummah, the deen of Allah, they will kill you one day. And that was two things in one. Number one is obviously a prophecy from Rasulullah ﷺ that that's who will kill you. And in that, by referring to the killers as baghiyah, fi'atun baghiyah, they will be rebellious people. That obviously means that you will be good, you're good people. You're a good person. And you will remain on the truth and the haqq, and that's why evil people will kill you. And the other thing is that the Prophet ﷺ is also using this type of language to express the fact that only bad people would kill such a remarkable human being. That it will take somebody truly evil to kill someone like you. You are beloved to Allah and His Messenger ﷺ. And the Prophet of Allah ﷺ in another narration even goes as far as telling him that the last thing that you will drink in this world will be milk. And again, number one, that's a prophecy. And number two, milk generally is considered a blessing. Like the Prophet ﷺ gave us a general dua or a general etiquette, a general sunnah for when we drink water or anything else as a substitute of water. Anytime we drink anything, then he would say bismillah and he would say alhamdulillah. When you consume something, all the ad'iya, all the ad'iya masnuna, all the duas the Prophet ﷺ, you know, would re- read or recite after eating or drinking something, alhamdulillah, ladiyata'amani wa saqani wa ja'alani min Muslimin, etc. Um, but for milk, the Prophet ﷺ taught us a very specific, unique dua. Allahumma barik lana fihi wa zidna minhu. And so, milk is considered a special blessing. That's why the Quran even refers to the fact that there will be rivers of milk in paradise. The Prophet ﷺ one time, when he saw a dream about some of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, he interpreted milk as a sign of knowledge and blessing. So milk was considered a blessing in that regard, something very blessed, something that is a great blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet ﷺ telling him that the last thing that you will drink in this world will be milk, number one is not only a prophecy, but number two saying that even up till your very last breath, ya Ammar, you will be blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you will leave this dunya with one of the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you'll be killed by these very evil, wretched people. So now they're bringing these bricks over and they're all reciting the praise and making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is basically what the masjid looked like. 
that first and foremost, uh, there's a narration from Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anuma. Imam Abu Dawood mentions this narration in his Sunan. أخبره أن المسجد كان على عهد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم مبنيا باللبن. That at the time of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم, the masjid was constructed with these bricks. وسقفه الجريد. The roof of the masjid were the branches of date palm trees, like palm trees. The branches of palm trees, because not only just the branches, but of course what's attached to the branches are the, the leaves. And palm tree leaves are very huge. So these branches were laid down, the same trees that they had cut down, they were laid out across the roof of the masjid. And the pillars... Of the masjid, the pillars in the middle and also the supporting beams of the masjid, they were the, the, the trees themselves, like the trunk of the trees. And that was the masjid of the Prophet. So, three things the pillars and the supporting beams were these trees. In between them, there were the bricks that were stacked up and lined up. And then on top, as a roof, and some of those trees were also laid across. And then the space in between was filled in with the branches and the leaves of those date palm trees. And that is the total construction of the masjid of Rasulullah That's it. The ground of the masjid, the ground of the masjid was the same ground, the earth. That was the ground of the masjid, the dirt. That was the ground. And that was the total construction of the masjid of the Prophet Towards there, were, there was no, on the, on the entrance if you want to call it that, it was just open. It was just open at the backside, the entrance. And it was built towards the qibla, and that was the masjid of the Prophet That was the total masjid of the Prophet and so at this particular time, there was nothing on the ground, that was it. And so eventually it men- it's mentioned in a narration that one other sahabi basically came because when it would rain, the water would sometimes kind of leak through and seep through because there were just branches and leaves and things like that. That the water would leak through and it would come onto the ground and it would get wet. And obviously you mix dirt with water and you get mud. And so when they would pray, they would basically get mud on them. And they would pray in this condition. So Sahabi came with some rocks and stones, and he spread rocks and stones all across the ground. And that was the, eventually, when, and it's even narrated that when he put those rocks and those stones on the ground, the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, but don't do anything more. That's enough. Very good, but that's enough. And that's why they had a special rule of fiqh. The Prophet ﷺ taught the Sahaba anhum that when you go into sujood, if there's like a rock, that is like poking you in your forehead, right? I, I was explaining to the students, like it's like impending doom. You're going into sujood looking at a rock pointing up at you. The Prophet ﷺ allowed them, ajazalahum. He gave them permission that you can wipe your hand just one time. You can smooth out the rock, remove it so it doesn't injure you. And then you do sujood like that. And that was the masjid of Rasulullah wasallam. And the narration goes on to explain this narration of Ibn Umar. فَلَمْ يَزِدْ فِيهِ أَبُوْ بَكْرِ شَيْئًا Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu after the passing of Rasulullah By the way, I should mention that when they would pray Fajr in the morning, when they would come for Fajr in the morning, when they would, come, when they would pray Salat al-Isha at night, obviously it's dark outside. So they used to pray in the dark. Like they couldn't even see the person next to them sometimes. It was pitch dark. There was no light. And finally in the ninth year of Hijrah, much later on, nine years after the grand opening, 
Tamim Adari radiallahu ta'ala anhu came and hung a lantern, a lamp, a candle in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ was very happy and he praised him for this. And, and that was it. That was the only light in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. That was nine years later. So that was the masjid of Rasulullah ﷺ. So now Abu Bakr, after the passing of Rasulullah ﷺ, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala, in two and a half years of his khilafah, Ibn Umar says, فَلَمْ يَزِدْ فِيهِ Abu Bakr شَيْئًا Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala did not make any additions, any improvements to the masjid, left it as it is. وَزَادَ فِيهِ Umar. Umar radiallahu ta'ala was the first one to kind of do some expansion of the masjid, if you want to call it that. He was the first one to kind of change up the masjid a little bit. وَبَنَاهُ عَلَى بِنَائِهِ and what he basically did was he didn't make the masjid larger, bigger. He just kind of reconstructed it. He renovated the masjid. And what did he do? That وَبَنَاهُ عَلَى بِنَائِهِ فِي عَهْدِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِالْلَّبِنِ وَالْجَرِيدِ وَأَعَادَ عُمُدَهُ خَشَبًا he, All he did was get new bricks and replace the bricks that were kind of chipping away, that were withering away. He replaced the branches and the leaves on the roof with more branches and leaves. And some of the pillars that were kind of getting weak, he replaced those pillars with new trees, pillars, but kept it. So it was basically identical. All he did was bring new branches, all he did was bring new bricks and replace the ones that were messed up. That was it. وَغَيْرَهُ عُثْمَانُ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَلَىٰ عَنْهُ The first one to really change the construction of the masjid was Uthman ibn Affan رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَلَىٰ عَنْهُ وَزَادَ فِيهِ زِيَادَةً كَثِيرًا He increased it quite a bit. وَبَنَا جِدَارَهُ بِالْحِجَارَةِ الْمَنْقُوشَةِ وَالْقَصَّةِ What happened was during the time of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, there was a lot of, you know, the, the, the Islamic empire was rapidly increasing. And it was going into non-Arab lands. And so at that time, a lot of very, you know, unique things were being brought back to Medina. Special types of stones. There were some, you know, some stones with some like ayat of Quran or some type of drawings or something kind of carved into it, like decorations and things like that, or just just rounded out stones or smooth, you know, stones that had been smoothed out and things like that. So these very nice things were being brought. So Uthman radiallahu ta'ala expanded the masjid, made it a little bit bigger, and what he did was he put some of these nicer stones into the masjid. So what he did was now the pillars, the pillars of the masjid and the walls of the masjid were replaced with these nicer stones. Um, and the roof of the masjid was now made out of like oak wood. So from faraway lands, this wood that was being brought in that was very nice, he basically put a roof of the masjid as solid oak wood. And this is the narration of Bukhari, uh, Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala an Ali ibn al-Madini. The other, some of the other narrations also, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala, for instance, he mentions, Zada Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, muta'awwilan qawlahu, that Uthman radiallahu ta'ala, when he was asked about the permissibility of kind of increasing the masjid of the Prophet and improving the masjid of the Prophet he quoted the hadith of Rasulullah an authentic narration, which is mentioned in many of the books of hadith. That the Prophet ﷺ said, "Man bana lillahi masjidan, walau kamafhasi qatatin, bana Allahu lahu baytan fil jannah." That anyone that will build a masjid, even if it be like the nest of a bird, anyone that will build a, a, a house for Allah, a masjid, Allah will build a palace for him in paradise. Wa waqafahu al-sahabatu al-mawjudun ala dhalik. 
All the Sahaba that were alive at that time agreed when it came to the expansion and the improvement of Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi Al-Sharif. So there was ijma', a consensus of the Sahaba that yes, this is okay. And it stayed basically in that particular form. And it's mentioned at this particular time that when this expansion took place, this kind of enveloped in. This kind of expanded beyond what used to be the quarters of the Prophet ﷺ, where the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhum were buried. It expanded beyond that, like the masjid is today. Right? They expanded beyond that, so they cordoned off that area, kind of you know, separated that area, but the masjid started to expand beyond that. Then it stayed in that same uh, basic layout uh, until the time of... <clears throat> Until the time of Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik. So Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik who basically built the, the Jami' Mosque in Damascus. Jami' Dimashq. So he's the one who built the major, the central mosque of Damascus. Um, he ordered uh, Umar bin Abdul Aziz who was the governor over Medina at that time. He ordered Umar bin Abdul Aziz um, to basically improve the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And that's when the prophetic quarters entered into the masjid as well. And also what ended up happening at that time was that the masjid was increased from the front end as well. So where the member of the Prophet ﷺ used to be, and where the musalla of the Prophet ﷺ used to be, where he used to give khutbah from, where he used to lead the prayer from, the masjid was extended on the front end at that time as well. Like we find it today. Where the sufuf, the rose, would now be ahead of where the member of the Prophet ﷺ was. And that's how we find al-masjidun nabawi al-sharif till today as well. So that's when that major expansion was done. And from that point on, the masjid was increased. And Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala actions of increasing the masjid is part of the evidence of the... Of those scholars, the majority of the scholars are of the opinion, حُكْمُ الزِّيَادَةِ فِي حُكْمِ الْمَزِيدِ That when the expansion of a masjid is done, it is in the hukum of the masjid. What that basically means is we know that there is a sanctity for the masjid, there is a reward for the masjid, there are certain acts that are specific to the masjid, like i'tikaf. And so if you expand the masjid, it enters into the same command as the masjid. So for instance, we know that there is an extra reward for praying in the masjid of Rasulullah Like there is an extra reward for praying in the masjid haram in Mecca. As that masjid continues to expand, as long as you are praying anywhere within the expanded area of that masjid as well, you also get that similar extra reward. And so that is part of the evidence of those scholars, the majority of the scholars who basically say that as a masjid expands, its reward and its area and its hukum continues to expand as well. So this was the expansion that was going on. There, there are many, many different narrations um, that talk about the virtues of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ while we're here on the topic of the uh, masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. So we might as well talk about this as well, that there are many, many different narrations which mention the virtue, the reward of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. Some of those narrations, I'll just mention a few of them, 
um, that the Prophet ﷺ talked about how uh, one of the three most sacred masad, the three most sacred masajid, the places where people need to go, almost like it's a form of performing a pilgrimage. They, it's an act of reward to travel there just to visit that masjid. La rihal illa ila thalatha. That these are the three places where people are encouraged to go and visit, and it's an act of reward to actually visit these places. And of course, they are Masjid Haram, the Kaaba in Mecca. The second place is Al Masjid. Masjid al-Nabawi, the Prophet's mosque in Medina, and the third place is of course Masjid Aqsa in Jerusalem. Masjidi hadha wa masjid al-haram wa masjidi bayt al-muqaddas. And that's a hadith of, uh, of the Sahihain in Bukhari and Muslim. In another narration, uh, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa in the Sahihain, he also says, Salatun fi masjidi hadha khayrun min alfi salatin fi ma siwahu illa masjid al-haram. The Prophet of Allah sallallahu says that praying as one salah in my masjid here, al-masjid al-nabawi in Medina, is better than a thousand prayers in any other masjid except for the masjid al-haram, the masjid in Mecca. That's the only place where the, the prayer has more virtue. In another narration the Prophet ﷺ talks about you know فَإِنَّ ذَلِكَ أَفْضَلٍ that that masjid praying in the masjid of uh, in Mecca masjid al-haram that is of course more virtuous there's another narration as mentioned in Bukhari and Muslim where Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala relates that the Prophet ﷺ says this is a famous hadith that is also inscribed there when you go to the Prophet's mosque مَا بَيْنَ بَيْتِي وَمِن بَرِي رَوْضَةٌ مِن رِيَادِ الْجَنَّةِ وَمِن بَرِي عَلَى حَوْضِي the Prophet said that the space, the area between my home, the quarters of the Prophet ﷺ, where is where the Prophet ﷺ is buried, between there and between my mimbar, from where the Prophet ﷺ used to deliver the khutbah, that piece of land is roldatum min riyad al-jannah, it is a garden from the gardens of paradise. وَمِن عَلَى حَوْضِي And my mimbar is at the place where my hawd, al-kawthar, the hold will be on the Day of Judgment. That is that spot. Um, and there are many, many other narrations which talk about the virtues of the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. There's a little bit of a discussion from the scholars of Islam as to what are the most sacred places on earth. What are the most sacred places on earth? And so the vast overwhelming majority of the scholars of the Ummah are of the opinion that the most sacred place on earth is Al-Kaaba Al-Sharifa. The Kaaba in Mecca, that is the most sacred place on earth. The second most sacred place on earth is of course the Masjid of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's the second most sacred place on earth. What's very interesting is that Imam Malik Ta'ala was actually of the opinion that the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ is more sacred than even the Kaaba itself. And his reasoning and his logic in terms of that was, أَنَّ مَسْجِدَ الْمَدِينَةِ أَفْضَلْ مِنَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ لِأَنَّ ذَاكَ بَنَاهُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ وَهَذَا بَنَاهُ مُحَمَّدْ وَمَعْلُومٌ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا أَفْضَلُ مِنْ إِبْرَاهِيمُ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ Imam Malik said that the reason for this is that the Kaaba in Mecca, the one who laid the foundations of the Kaaba was who? Who raised the foundations of the Kaaba in Mecca? Ibrahim alayhi salam. Who laid the foundation of the Masjid Al-Masjid Nabawi in Medina? Who laid the foundation? 
The Prophet And he said, we know that the Prophet is Imamul Anbiya, Sayyidul Mursaleen, the most virtuous of all the Prophets. So that, that's why this masjid is more virtuous than that masjid. In either case, it's really not even an ikhtilaf. Basically, what it basically ends in is that the masjid in Mecca, Kaaba, is one of the most sacred places on earth. And similarly, the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ is one of the most sacred places on earth. So these are some of the virtues of the Prophet ﷺ's Masjid in Medina. The, the, the last thing that I'll end with about the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ is a very beautiful story. And it's kind of a good way to kind of end with the love of Rasulullah ﷺ. So now that this basic little Masjid was constructed, this basic little Masjid was constructed, and, we, and I want us to take that ibrah and that lesson. Uthman ibn Affan. Let me, let me clarify one thing. Because when I talk about this topic, people kind of walk away with different notions. And we're obviously sitting in a very big, beautiful masjid. Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu renovated the masjid, expanded the masjid, and made it very, very nice. Put the nicest type of stones and you know, rocks and bricks and things like that that he could find. Nice stones, he put them in the masjid. Put nice wood in the masjid. And the sahaba all agreed and nobody objected. Which means that it was the understanding of the sahaba radiallahu ta'ala that it is not just permissible, but an act of virtue, and an act of reward to adorn the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's nothing wrong with us building nice masajid. Especially, it's also relative. Let's also keep this in mind that it's relative. If we're driving nice cars, and living in very nice, luxurious homes. And then we have a masjid that looks like a shack because, oh, it's sunnah, brother. <laughs> right? Then the house of the Prophet ﷺ, that's also part of the sunnah then if we're going to implement that sunnah. But it's also relative. If our homes are nice, then the masjid should also be nice. And it's an act of reward to make the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as nice as we can. To adorn it more than our homes. That's number one, we have to take, so I wanted to clarify that. That that doesn't mean that this is impermissible, or this is not good. No, this is an act of reward. The Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala did it. And especially when you put it into context, within what is our lifestyle, what, is our, what are our standards of living. Then the masjid, the masjid, our masjid, should reflect that same standard. Should be in accordance with that standard. That's number one. Number two, I still will have one more thing though. That... The masjid of the Prophet ﷺ was such a humble structure. Such a humble structure. But look at the good, look at the khayr, and look at the devotion and dedication that was there. And that's something we can reflect on. Us, we. That if our masajid are very, very nice and beautiful, mashallah. But how are the actions and what is the quality of the individuals within the masjid? That's one thing we can reflect on, that long before the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ was adorned with stones and construction and structure, the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ was adorned with hearts. It was decorated with hearts, with a'mal, with deeds, with iman, with faith and belief. And that's our job and our task and responsibility. We have to populate the houses of Allah. It's a blessing of Allah that we have these masajid. But we have to populate them with that iman, with that a'mal, with those actions, with those deeds. It's our obligation. It's necessary for us 
to bring quality to the house of Allah. Not just in its structure, but in terms of the, the people, ourselves. We have to continue to improve ourselves and keep coming back to the masjid and populating the house of Allah. So the last thing that I'll end with is that now that this masjid is constructed and they're praying there five times a day behind the Prophet ﷺ, there was obviously the need for a mimbar. There was a need for a mimbar. And there, the Prophet ﷺ, in terms of giving khutbah or just leaning against something to give the lectures, there was a tree stump that was there in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And so the Prophet ﷺ used that tree stump as the initial mimbar. That's where he would sit against. And that was basically the makeshift mimbar that he initially used. And so after some time, the Prophet ﷺ actually asked, you know that, can anyone basically put a mimbar together? A place where we can sit, where I can sit from and then address the congregation. So it was actually a sister in the community, it was a woman. It was a sahabiya. It was a woman in the community of the Prophet ﷺ who had money and who had, um, you know, a slave or a servant who knew carpentry and masonry. And so she hired him to basically build a mimbar and then had him deliver it to the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. So the first mimbar in Islam was donated by a sister in the community, was donated by a woman. Now this mimbar was brought to the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And I've talked about this before, kind of on the side, as a side issue. But now this mimbar was brought to the Prophet ﷺ, it was put in. And so the Prophet ﷺ, when he was brought, he got up, he was sitting against that same tree stump that he would normally sit against. He got up and went and sat on the mimbar. And when he got up, the Sahaba anhum say that we heard like a noise, like a moaning and groaning type of sound. And we were all shocked. And the Prophet of Allah ﷺ explained to them that that is that tree stump crying. And it's crying because I've left it. And it missed the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ walked over to that tree stump and he placed his hand on it. And the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala, this is an authentic narration found in the Sahihain. That the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, when he placed his hand on it, the tree stump became quiet and stopped crying. Al-Hasan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala, I've mentioned this before. Whenever he would, he would narrate this story a lot. He would narrate this story. And then he would advise the people, like he would give the reminder to his congregation, that what is wrong with us? What's wrong with us today? What kind of believers are we? That a tree stump missed the Prophet so much. Loved him so much that a tree stump would cry. At the distance from Rasulullah What is wrong with us today That we don't love the Prophet like that That we don't long to see him That we don't get to know him That we don't talk about him So he used to encourage them Cultivate the love of the Prophet Talk about him Learn about him Read about him And cultivate the love of Rasulullah And remember what, I, what we talked about in the beginning, uh, all the way in the beginning when we started the Sirah Durus. You can access the podcast, the recordings, and listen to it. But we talked about how that the love of the Prophet something. this month of Rabi'ul Awwal, there's a lot of talk about the love of the Prophet But how do you really cultivate that love? What is that true love? That love for the Prophet is something where you think about him. You really honestly think, like sitting at your home, or sitting driving your car, or sitting at your desk, you would think about the Prophet 
You would actually want to meet the Prophet ﷺ. When you talk with people, you know what's a sign of love? What comes up in your conversations? Who do you talk about? When you would sit with people, when you would talk to people, it's the Prophet ﷺ that would come up. You would talk about the Prophet ﷺ. You would dream about meeting the Prophet ﷺ. You would look forward to meeting the Prophet ﷺ. You would try to be like the Prophet ﷺ. Try to walk like him, talk like him, act like him, behave like him, be like him. And where does that love come from though? That's the million dollar question. Because we all struggle with that. Where does that come from? That love comes from familiarity. From understanding, from familiarity, from exposure. You have to know about him, learn about him, read about him. And that's basically what this is an effort of in regards to. Even though we, we delve a little bit deeper here. Because the life of the Prophet ﷺ is a code. It's a manual, it's a code, it's a resource on how to live life. And how to solve our problems. And how to like raise good families. And how to build good communities. But at the same time, if, if before anything else, you develop that love, that familiarity, that understanding, that, uh, that, that, that comfort, that knowledge, that leads to the love for the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the love of the Prophet And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be proper, true representatives of the legacy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.